Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I am Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Thank you for joining me. Welcome. Welcome. I'm out in my garage sweating after a long day shooting Marin, my TV show that will be on IFC in May. Uh, this is the fourth season. Spent today working with uh, Joey Diaz, just me and uh, the doctor, Joey Diaz. Uh, exciting. It's it was it's been yeah, very fun. I I've heard. I know that all three seasons of the Marin show are on Netflix. But in other me news, I believe that my special, my epic special, more later will be on Amazon Prime and perhaps Hulu, uh, beginning in March, March third ish. That's my understanding. What about today? What about today's show? What is happening today? Well, today I talked to Herb Alpert. Herb Alpert from Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass and, uh, and A&M Records. I don't know where you grew up or what your parents were like or how old you are necessarily, but uh, my, uh, my, my parents had Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass Taste of Honey album, and I just looked at the cover and I'm like, who the hell's that dude? That dude's got something going on. And then, of course, there's the famous Whipped Cream and Other Delights cover that uh, everybody is familiar with, but you may not know his music. But his career as a um, the creator of a label and and uh, and a, a producer is vast. He's, he's a major force in modern American music, and he, he was available. Uh, yeah, he came up in conversation. I'm like, sure, I'll talk to Herb Alpert. I mean, that guy's uh, that guy's one of the big guys. I like, I like talking to the big guys with stories. So that's happening today. Also, the Duplass brothers, Mark and the Jay Duplass, are going to come in and talk to me for a while. And they are a very talented and charismatic duo doing a lot of stuff. They have a little empire, a little filmmaking empire, those Duplasses, film and TV. Hard to not resent them, but they're such likable guys. Well, that just might be me. I will say this, um, if you're avoiding or ignoring or dismissing or not making time for the Coen Brothers' latest movie, Hail Caesar, you're out of your fucking mind, you're misled, you've uh, prejudged based on garbage, and I, look, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know them, 
I don't, uh, you know, I, they've never wanted to come on my show. They don't, I, I have no, this is not a paid promotion, but I'm a, an incredibly big fan of the Coen brothers, as are most people who like good film. These guys really are probably, if not the best American filmmakers that we have uh, in the top five or four. And I've been with them since the beginning. And I've been through some of their more difficult movies. But the one thing you know about the Coens is that you're probably going to have to see it again, maybe two or three times. I've been, you know, I've seen most of them. I'm Blood Simple. I remember when that came out, I was like, what? And then Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. Barton Fink, one of the greatest movies ever made. And oddly, this new film, Hail Caesar, sort of picks up where Barton Fink left off in a way. Like, you can draw a comparison to that. But this movie, Hail Caesar, is one of the tightest, deep movies that the Coens have ever made. Rich in 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 levels of interpretation i mean it just is all there i can't even begin to tell you how upset i was and look everyone's entitled to their opinion but if you really love film and you are really engaged on in anywhere in your past or in your heart or in your mind with the history of cinema there's no way you can't like this movie i guess i'm aggravated because i was led to believe that it was a mediocre coen brothers film obviously nothing that they do is bad, but sometimes you have expectations and sometimes not unlike a Paul Thomas Anderson movie where you're like, well, maybe I missed something. And you're talking to a guy, well, you're not talking to a guy, you're listening to a guy. I'm not a big Lebowski guy. I've watched that movie four or five times. I want to feel what the cult of big Lebowski feels, but I'm, I'm not that guy. For me, Fargo was genius. Raising Arizona, genius. I mean, I you know I I like the Hudsucker Proxy. I loved Miller's Crossing. Barton Fink for me is uh, one of the best. Oh brother, where art thou? I loved it. Man who wasn't there, I even liked. Uh, no country for old men. I fucking saw that six times. I'm gonna see it again right now. I might even turn it on while I'm talking to you. Burn after reading, didn't love it, but that was a, I had a minor issue with Malkovich. Wasn't the Coens' fault. Serious Man, one of my favorite movies ever. I would have to say a Serious Man. No Country for Old Men, Barton Fink, really, and, and Fargo in that order. But Hail Caesar, this is the, what's the word, apotheosis? Is that the word? This is the apotheosis, I hope it's a word, of everything the Coens have done. And people were dismissing it as like being fragmented or a mishmash. Are you out of your fucking mind? I mean, I went in there knowing that a lot, you know, I, I you know put it out, I asked on Twitter, my resource for the, uh, the general opinion and it was very it was divided but a lot of people were like it's a mishmash uh it's fragmented uh it's just a series of cameos it's uh it, the story's not there and it's like are you out of your fucking mind so i went in there kind of nervous but excited to see a coen's brother movie i'm always excited to see a coen brothers movie and i watched that movie and i sat there for two hours and right away i was like oh no this is fucking gene this is fucking genius this is fucking good and then as it's going on i'm like oh shit this might be the best one this might and that feeling of elation while watching a movie everything was there for me now again this is just my opinion but again if you have an appreciation for the history of movies and for for what can be done with a film 
and and smart films. I mean, this is the fucking movie. I don't know who the fuck doesn't give this movie a chance. And, and look, I get excited about things, but it just seemed like to call it a mishmash or fragmented or lacking story or just a, a series of cameos. One dude even said like, yeah, there was these um, non sequitur dance sequences. This was the Coens celebrating movies. I mean, there are bits and pieces. First, you got Josh Brolin, this beautifully working class, flawed character who is a studio overseer, a fixer, but more of a lot manager and also a troubleshooter. But he's Catholic and he's, you know, things weigh heavy on him. And he is a morally not challenged guy, but he's a thoughtful guy. He's a man of faith. And throughout the movie, you know, there's an ongoing struggle with quitting smoking, but then there becomes, there's this big sort of moral struggle that actually happens in the midst of him producing a film about Jesus Christ and also having to manage, you know, several problems with actors and shifting an actor who was primarily a Western, a cowboy actor who didn't, wasn't used to talking into, into a different type of picture. Then you have this, this side story where these, uh, these communist writers kidnapped George Clooney and where does that go? And it was one of the best depictions of why and how the writers in Hollywood became attracted to, uh, to communism, to the ideas of communism. And it was really about, you know, payment and about work and about the nature of capitalism. And in the middle of all this, you have Josh Brolin's character who was just, you know, balancing all of this and trying to, to do the right thing by himself for himself and for the for the studio and for movies, which it as as you watch the film, he believes deeply in. He's like the Jesus figure of this film. And if you move with him through these stories and through the primary story, which is really about, you know, whether or not he makes a decision. And, you know, he, the, he, there's engagements with the priests. There's confessionals. There's a meeting with the devil. You may not be able to identify the devil right away, but he's definitely the devil. There's a, you know, when the three primary working forces in the film are are Catholicism and a man's moral struggle and a man's burden of carrying the weight of the studio and the personalities within it and the future of the movies themselves. And yet, what does he choose to do in the end? What do movies really mean? What do they really give to people? It's a movie about about the levels of work and about creativity and about making something and about you know certain elements of class and also about the insipid disposition of some actors, but the genius disposition of others. But the greatest thing about the film is that it celebrates the history of movies. It shows you all the different jobs on a soundstage. It shows you a soundstage in general. It shows you a fully executed and choreographed musical sequence. And it shows you a fully executed and choreographed aquatic ballet sequence. It shows you a fully executed and choreographed old-timey Western um, stunt rider sequence. And it shows you the making of almost like a Noel Coward-ish film. And the reason they spend time on this is that when you get as much distance as we have from those types of films when they were made, and if you studied film or you saw those films, if you were fortunate enough to see those types of movies in a movie theater and really understand the elation and excitement they can create, you know, even like even the Western, they did these things perfectly. There was a slight tinge of satire to them, but they honored the genre and they showed you why they were amazing. They humanized 
the history of film by showing what went into making the film and then by showing the execution and the beauty of what those films were trying to do. That was all going on throughout this story. You know, what do movies mean? What is the power of film? And it was actually the, the same movie studio that was in Barton Fink, I believe, it was Capitol Pictures. What I'm telling you is I am still thinking about this film three days later because the levels of, of interpretation and um, sort of uh, speculation and, and the levels of, of emotional, philosophical, and uh, cinematic depth that is possible when you look at it, I still can't wrap my brain around a lot of it. But all I, all I know is you got it all in there. You got it all in there. Love, hate, good, evil, uh, dedication, commitment, work, trust, and comedy. And, and some deep comedy. But I, one of the things that I, I read a lot was people basically saying like, I, it wasn't the movie that I was led to believe I was going to see from the trailer. Who gives a fuck? Grow up. Grow the fuck up. It's a Coen Brothers movie. So what, you, it wasn't a slapstick comedy? It's like, it wasn't really that funny. How do you go into a Coen Brothers movie? How do you just take it in on a surface level? How do you not allow your mind and your heart, how do you not allow them to open up and engage with guys who are at the top of their game and completely in control of their craft and are deeply philosophical and intellectual and, and, and beautifully constructed cinematically and script-wise? How do you dismiss that? There's something about the culture today that, you know, maybe I'm an old man, but for someone just to dismiss something like, you know, like, nah, Hail Caesar, nah, it's like, no, go reckon with it. Geniuses made it. I don't know about HBO Vinyl. Scorsese made a two-hour piece of film for a television project. It's Scorsese. Who the fuck are you to just be like, nah, give it more than that. Jesus. I guess I like the movie. I guess that's what I'm saying. I would like to talk to the Coen brothers, by the way, if anyone knows them. Uh, Look, folks, Mark and Jay Duplass, the Duplass brothers, the infamous Duplass brothers, the uh, now famous Duplass brothers, makers of film and television. uh, They have a new season of their show, Togetherness, which premieres this Sunday on HBO. Their animated show, Animals, is currently airing on HBO. I play a a rat in that, I believe. So uh, now I'm going to talk to him right here in the garage. Me and Mark and Jay Dupont. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or need to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts uh quick thing before we get started yeah yeah dried fruit 
a lot of dried fruit at lunch. So are you mm. saying that you're going to gas? I'm going to try not to. I'm going <laughs> to okay. try to hold, but... That's not what you're supposed to do in here. You're supposed to release. But is that, it's like a threat. It it was. Now it's a a little bit of like. Now it's sort of like a a punchline. I I wouldn't call it a threat. I would call it a power play. It's a power play. Yeah. But, but, okay, so it's a power play, but at some point that just means like two other guys go like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Yeah. And then I lose all all my power. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's why I'm holding this knife. It's a wonner. You're the guy who farted. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the brothers Dupois, I mean, is, was it hard to take 10 fucking minutes out of doing, you know, a dozen projects to come over here? I, I'm, am I starting with the wrong attitude? No. No, it, it <laughs> was hard. The truth is, it was hard, Mark Maron. <laughs> it was hard. We yeah. talked about it. We talked about your worth. Uh-huh. We talked about <laughs> your energy and whether, whether we sure, wanted to allow sure. you into yeah. our lives. I mean, what, how, how, how big of a reach, uh, uh, a reach your, does WTF really have now? Yeah. I we mean, checked your star meter. Yeah, uh-huh. we checked your star meter. Um, we, 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 how is my star meter? It, it didn't want, cut it. No, I'm sure I, it wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, what, are, what is the star meter? Is that a, a site you can go to? Is that on Rotten Tomatoes? IMDb Pro, IMDb. Yeah. Uh, you can check people's star meter Holy that tells them, tells you how hot they are. Oh God damn it! Well give now, an instant. Mm-hmm. Now we got it. What's now your I, number? I don't fucking know, dude. And you know what? They they make you green when you're on the rise, but when you're not doing so well, and <laughs> oh, uh, I didn't and that the part. Blo- and the bloom is coming off of you, they put you red. I think I, I think I got the oh. Five thousand four forty-seven, right between our predictions. Okay. That's great. All right. that's what is that? Is it's, that a great, it's a great star meter. It's a good I, number. I guess a, great a lot number. higher for you, so that'll tell you something. Yeah, I guess I'm, a little lower, but yeah, that's okay. I'm gaining the Fuck advantage. Fuck both of you. Now. Hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking smartass. Let's see where our star meters are at. <laughs> Let's see where the smartass Duplass brothers are. You guys checked like right before you got here. We wouldn't have brought up the star meter yeah, if, we didn't if you feel hadn't like fucking ours. checked. I know. If I, if Actor, producer, writer, Mark Duplass. All right, bro. <laughs> What's Mark got? It's what? probably a good one. It's not. It's not good? You may, maybe if you fart. Maybe, maybe, maybe if I guess <laughs> we'll, I might we'll get that up. If you fart right now, watch <laughs> those numbers just go up. 2470. Yeah, that's a little on the lower side for me. Right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. You might want to re- retract that statement. That's uh, a little on the lower side for, oh, and you too, 2842, Jay. Mm. Mm. You know, I was really, this was sort of an ego boost for me. <laughs> I feel pretty good about myself. I just beat the, I've, I've, I've almost doubled, I'm, I'm two Duplass brothers. No, that's, that's higher my, is lo- is worse. Oh, it is? Higher yeah. is lower. Oh, yeah. so I'm, I, be. That was, like I, Jennifer Lawrence is like number three. Oh, so I'm not that good then. <laughs> you guys are better than, like I was all excited. But your show is just starting to. But you're shoot. down this week, just by the way. I am? Yeah, I'm you're down. down. Down this week. No, I mean, what am I going to do? You guys are on television, and, and you're in a global go, Golden Globe winning thing. Aren't you on television? Yeah, but not doesn't. It's not real television. I was on your television show one time. Yeah, how how was the feedback remember, on that? Remember when how I was came the feedback in on that? And we shot a. You're scene. up seventeen this week, by the way. That's not bad. Seventeen. Nice, nice work. Yeah, we, we shot, shot a scene. scene it took in the about fake garage. Twenty two minutes. Yeah, to you're shoot. in and out. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> My show does good on the Netflix a year later. But uh, yeah, I'm great. happy. I'm okay with that star meter. That's like our movies. That's huh? our whole career. It does good on the Netflix later on. Well, that's where it's at. But no, it must do okay on the HBO. Do you get numbers on HBO for the uh, togetherness? 
on we the HBO. We do, but they yeah. don't mean anything anymore. And yeah. That has been uh, a benefit for people like us, I find. Because yeah. um, as long people as you're... trying to skate under the radar. Yeah, if your shows are like well-reviewed and people yeah. generally like them, I think you get picked up on HBO. But yeah. like, we're not bringing in massive numbers on togetherness. I watched means. it, and at certain points I found it upsetting. Let's uh, talk about it. it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was good, but uh, I think there's reasonable depictions of the uh, strains Mm-hmm. Of uh, of of uh, I don't know it, it's what it is it's it's what grownups look like now yeah yeah do you know like there was a different time where grownups look different but you guys yes. look like grownups some version of them which is really weird what are you forty something I am thirty nine come on Mark let's well, you know what it's you're not going to lose any points how old are you <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> he's going to lose points man <laughs> there's emotion emotionally I'm like forty six but uh, my right. body's thirty nine but there's there's not a lot of depiction honest depictions of uh, people of your ilk and your age and your class that. Uh, that 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 are really kind of um, relentless. Yeah, like there's some sad moments that the genius at the funny guy. What's that guy's name? Steve Zissis. Steve Zissis, our high school buddy. Yeah, I don't know where you found that guy, but boy, he's funny. He is we funny. Grew isn't up he? with that mofo, and we, we went to high school with him. And but, but was he always an actor? He's always been an actor. However, he has not always been known. And right. that was like part of our genesis of the creation of well, the so show. Well, so he's playing. He's playing. He's playing him in a way. He's playing yeah, a version he's of playing himself. It's yeah. like we're looking in the world. Yeah. And you, you, I'm sure this happens in the comedy world all the time. But we got a guy pushing forty. Yeah. Who is a god? I yeah. mean that that guy was. He always has been and has never lost it. Just yeah. So funny. So dark. So tragic. And you see him sort of like. Is this guy gonna die with all of his magic inside of him? Oh, you know, and yeah. so you see this like black star dying, and you're like, you want to shine light on it. So you've known him that long, and think, and it got rough for him in real life. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, because he seems to be pretty comfortable with, with the darkness. Oh yeah, yeah. he's <laughs> yes, with you it. You can't manufacture. He that. would. No. He would do very well in this room here. Sure, yes. I'd love to have him. Yeah. So he's a genius. Amanda Pete doing comedy, great. She's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, in yeah. season two, she really gets to, like, stretch. Really? We, we, we do this fun thing where, like, after we're done with all of our episodes, we invite a group of people in and we watch them all in a row to just check and see if we fucked anything up and yeah. messed anything up. And, and In terms of where the characters are going? Yeah, where the characters are going, what people wanted to see, and, uh-huh. you know, you, whatever. You make eight episodes kind of in a microcosm. You're like, let me see these in a row. Right. Does it all work? And yeah. We, and we laid them all out and... and and it was kind of consistently shocking people walking out of the room being like, I haven't seen Amanda do anything like that before. This I've never new. seen her do anything. Yeah. She always plays like, she's always a little dangerous. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. a little dangerous in this too, but it, there's a humility to it. Yeah. Like there's yeah. a desperation to her character uh, along with, like she's hurting that guy. What's yeah. his name, Steve? Yeah. Steve. She's hurting Steve and that yes. hurts me, which is one of the reasons why the <laughs> series was difficult. Yeah. yeah. Like why does she keep hurting that guy? When does this wet up? <laughs> <laughs> Why does he keep showing back up? What's Wait, the pain all about? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you're, it, but it's sort of funny because he can shoulder that. Yeah. And they yeah. do seem to love each other somehow. Whereas the couple with you and Linsky, that love seems strained. Whereas the unrequited love of the two clowns, that seems like it's, it's that undeniable. It's right. pretty, yeah, yeah. yeah, some pure beauty in that we stuff. We had a lot of questioning too. It was, it was like, um, how how is, how's this going to work? Like, yeah. how are people going to believe that a guy like Steve, yeah. that a girl like, Pete would be even in, interested in hanging out yeah. with a guy like Steve and because he no one knew who he was or whatever and then he showed up and started doing his thing and then it started to flip it was like what 
why is he even hanging around? This guy's right. this guy's pure magic. And then later on we brought, I mean, this has been an incredible thing for Mark and me is like, I mean, Amanda walked into the room and we weren't sure, you know, we've all seen, been watching her forever. Yeah. And she started dragging him around the room and beating the crap out of him in the audition, like in the first 30 seconds. And they had this electric chemistry going on. Well, she's a bully. She was was a bully. But then we start, when we were hanging out with her and we were doing scenes, like every week we hang out with her, that girl has more going on. Like she's got, you were saying this the other day, like she's, uh, she's, you know, raised Upper East Side in New York. She's like classically educated columbia extremely intelligent uh-huh. gorgeous she has the sense of humor of a 12 year old boy yeah it's just her and fart noises all day long from video village wait so you're gonna see her later is that why you ate the fruit that's why i ate meeting? the fruit i built it all <laughs> up for her we are, we are going stuff. to her birthday party tonight yeah, she's oh are good you? stuff yeah oh good yeah i want you to announce that there right when you get there that it could happen <laughs> dried at fruit the party <laughs> dried fruit at 1 p.m makes for a great party favor at 7 30 i dry fruits good man yeah are, are you concerned with your uh bowels do you are no, you, some, no, are no. you hung somebody up gifted me with dried fruit and i am an eating maniac and so right. i was just in the office working and there was dried fruit in front of me and i just ate about like 18 dried pears oh that's, and so oh, yeah you know yeah we'll, we'll just see what happens but, but you're not a guy that that's hung up on that yet like you know i got i gotta eat some fiber no no but i do think jay and i think about energy a lot and we think about like how can we have more energy to do what we want to do should we be working out more jay and i are really you have this discussion ridiculous emotional eaters yeah there's no stop button well you grew up with it right we grew up in new orleans yeah just eating yeah eating and loving food I mean, it's a, it's insane that we're thin. Yeah, it is kind but, of. It's it, insane and, and relative, not likable, really. From where I'm it can sitting. be annoying. Yeah. annoying but <laughs> the guys complaining about how much they eat, but don't are not heavy at but all. Well, like we work our asses off. We work out all the time. You do just pretty much. We so do. We can yeah. keep eating. So we can keep eating. Yeah. But it's it's weird. Like people see us on set, and when we we're big stress eaters, big emotional eaters. It's, it's hard when you're on set and shit, and when you're oh, working. On, oh, dude. in the office, even it's yeah. impossible not to eat. Constantly, and especially when you have your own show, like this is one thing. Like we've been loving this TV thing, but when you like carry a whole, when you're like the daddy of a whole universe, right? It's not that fun, right? it's hard as shit. It's fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. But it's people are like, oh, is it fun? You guys just look like you're smoking doobers back. No, we're killing ourselves but every second of the day. Let's clear this up. We never smoke weed on set. We ne- Everybody thinks we smoke weed on set. No. We really don't smoke weed. Actually, really what it comes down to. No, that we much. don't smoke yeah. weed. Yeah. It's okay it, to smoke a little weed occasionally. We we every time we smoke weed, yeah. we're like, we should smoke w- more weed. And you don't. Yeah. And we don't, don't because we're like ruthlessly efficient. Right with, with ourselves, it wouldn't be good if the brothers were like, "Oh, dude, you didn't do it." Not like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's no Shit, cameras, man. so there's we're no off. cameras. <laughs> we're off. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But how does it work? So you guys write the show together, and then how does it work on set? Because I know you both wear all the hats, producer, director, occasionally, but you're the actor in this. But you mm-hmm. are getting a, a lot of attention for your acting and transparent. I thought you were very good, by the way. Thanks very much. I don't need to tell him. He knows. Like I, you know, I get he tired knows. of telling Mark. All that the he's good, good in everything. Yeah. Because he's in everything. Every you know, There's a thing on now, right now, while let's we're talking. Let's talk about me. Yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about, about me and my acting. What's the matter? Do you feel left out? Was that a sad I thing? think we should talk about what do you do when you have two brothers in a room 
Yeah. And you want to compliment them both, and you have to be careful with who you're complimenting. Do you have any anxiety about that? Do you have any feelings about that? No, I'd like to see. I'm I'm trying to get you to turn. Yeah. <laughs> see, what I need is you. I, by the way, everybody plan, needs to know man. that Jay and I are on the other side of the table from Mark Marin here, and the, the most apparent object is there is an enormous knife sitting yeah. right between a, me and Jay. I believe Jay. you could maybe call it a buoy knife. Is it yeah. a, what is this thing? So, it's a knife. I just have stuff where it's always interesting to me to see what people choose okay. to fidget with. A yeah. knife, a hammer. Yeah, it looks like a and then mushroom. The, the healthy healthy thing. What do you call that? Everybody, be quiet. Ooh. Anybody know what that is? So, what do you call those? Hand exercise? I don't know. It's one of these things that yeah, um, you clamp exercise. It's a hand squeezer. It's um, what Matthew Modine uses in Vision Quest to work out before yes, he wrestles. Yes, he does. <laughs> That's right. But what? How does the work break down? What do you do? do you well, do? it's 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 different on every project. The the real honest truth of it is that Jay and I are. Uh, we drive ourselves really, really hard. We're both yeah. anxious and we're both uh, a little depressive and, yeah. and sad people. And so we get beat up. And Is that so, true? Yeah. So we show up on set. Yeah. yeah. And we kind of look at it. I mean, look at our, just look in our eyes. Yeah. I and mean, you, you, I know you Well, know he seems thing. like a pretty sweet guy. You seem to, like, he seems to be, uh, Jay seems a, a little more, um, comfortable with his vulnerability and his sensitivity you seem to put a lot of energy into keeping the party going i do a ton of energy towards that <laughs> yeah it's true so i called it incredible amount of energy. Uh, i'm so tired we mark. talk about it a lot I'm so tired. Wait, <laughs> mark does a lot of driving uh-huh. and i do a lot of quality control okay i do a lot of watching yeah uh but honestly we both this is the interesting part yeah probably this is the honestly if we're totally just cutting to what's going on uh-huh. with us. Hold on, let's cut to it. Cut to it. Uh, when <laughs> Door you, opens. When you work together the yeah. way that we have for our whole lives, not just 20 years of movies and yeah. music, I mean like 30 years of just like, you know, uh, making stuff. The job of being brothers. The job of yeah. being brothers and making shit together. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens is, is you become two parts of the same being. Yeah. And that is awesome for making art it's awesome for like making a tv show being a director like directing's too much right. it's too much for anybody right, right? Yeah. like all directors get crazy by the time they're 50 because it's too much yeah so we share a lot of those things but the problem that happens is that we become the same person you even go to the same party and like the way we talk about it is like one person's like doing the the Duplass persona, and yeah. if, oh, he's doing that. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna just lay back over here for a little bit. You know what I mean? Because like we were curated in the same household. Like we, and Mark is a little more Type A, and I'm a little more Type B. But on any given day, or if I go by myself, I yeah. get more Type A, and Mark right. probably gets. more And you're type not even B. twins, and we're not. No. We're worse than twins. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing, and we talk about that a lot. Which is like you're older. Uh, Jay's older by three and a half years, and uh-huh. so. I just look older because I drive all the time. Right. <laughs> so when you got the camera going, you're both sort of like, Mark, come here. Jay, come here. You know, who's usually, you know, watching the the takes? Well, he's acting, so you got to be mostly at the if video If he's village. acting, I mostly watch. But, I, you know, honestly, we have all these credits on IMDb Pro, but we just we're just brothers who make stuff. That is truly how it is. So our, Everybody wears all the hats. We wear all the hats, and it's really... It's not like Arturish, like the Cohen brothers. We yeah. tried to be the Cohen brothers. Right. We wanted to be them, and we failed miserably. Well, how'd you, why'd you fail? Because they're they created a singular form of making telling stories, and you can't yeah. beat the Cohen brothers at being the Cohen brothers. Well, I think when that's were you a trying? core difference? But too, well, we, this was like us in like film school in the early two thousands. But and... you guys did a lot of stuff together, so you're you're because st- the the Cohen brothers are very. 
you guys are driven, but they're very meticulous. I yes. imagine that you they know, every have, they have such clear vision from what we understand. Like they see the whole movie in their head yeah. before they show up on set. The storyboard's right. like ninety five percent, and of then the they movie, just you know? they just walk the movie through. Whereas all of our filmmaking happens right on the set, very organic in the moment, like a therapy session. Right, we're improvising, we're trying things, we're getting upset and nervous because it's not working. We have a breakthrough. Holy shit, this is so exciting! Get the it camera. wasn't even in the script. Let's yeah. go get it. You know, it's very uh, organic. I guess is it's the, like is trying to capture energetic light, like the best version of what this scene can be in right. this moment with the people we got and where we're at yeah. we know what the scene's supposed to be so let's just like see what happens and that's become your style I mean yeah. that's what you're known for and now but with the TV you gotta write scripts right with we the write TV scripts show. for everything there's a script for everything we just we just veer off of the script a lot to get stuff that's more organic but to your question of like who's doing what role it's, it's actually harder for us to pinpoint that because on any given day, someone can be more excited, more ready to drive, a little more anxious, a little more depressed. And then, you know, I remember the front of season two, I was really tired and down. And like, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this thing. And Jake came up and started driving. And it was like so great that I had somebody like helping to carry me through it. And then Jay got bronchitis and started <laughs> tanking. And I was like, okay, here I come. I'm going to start driving now. And that's just it's this weird sine, cosine wave of like... And the, and the people on set know this is the way it works. They kind of feel they it do. out from us, you yeah. know? And, and also, you know, we have relationships with the actors. Yeah. We have different relationships with actors. So, sometimes we find that one of us... It's easier for us to talk to somebody and or just understand what they're going through. Or about certain kinds of things, too. But and, you're in a lot of the scenes, though, too. Yes. Yeah. So on a big emotional scene, like uh, in our fourth episode of the first season where we have that, you know, sex in the hotel and yeah. it's like really rough, Jay is very clearly in the creative driver's seat there. Right. We have conversations after the takes. We see, make sure it's on the rails, but I'm kind of like, dude, I'm out. You, you Well, you got to be in do. the thing. Tell me what to do. Can't yeah. be all like that on the set. Yeah. I mean, you got to yeah. be in the scene. You can't be like that on the camera. Especially the way we out. shoot. Yeah. He has to be able to just be, let let anything happen, basically. Right. Now, when, when when you say you get all down, what what the fuck was going on? Were you tired? Uh, Were you got yeah, most, mental, like most biological of it, mental Most issues? of it from stuff. Most yeah. of it for us is, I would say, a combination of just being kind of at our core people who are desperately driven to and compelled to do this stuff that we do. And that we can't quite figure out. That might take a long time. But we yeah. are driven to come up this mountain yeah. and keep making stuff. And the yeah. ideas come and we do it. And then there's just another part of us that is like, I would say slightly bipolar. Yeah. Um, you know, I I personally take depression medication to keep me even keel yeah. and from crashing. Does it work? Oh, 10 years. 10 Wh years? Which one? Which one? I take Celexa. Yeah. Which is a, and like a, a lower dose of it. Right. And it's like a compression system for me that like huh. it keeps me from going nuts and it also is a little net under my ass when I'm like I drive myself oh, too hard, I fuck myself up, yeah. I fall down and it kind of catches me. Well, that's nice that it works for you. It, yeah, and some people it does, some people it doesn't. This yeah. has been something that works but it's, for me. It sounds like it's been working for the long haul. Big time. And and Jay and I both have just a little bit of that, I don't know if it's just an artist thing or just in our chemistry. We just like... Oh, yeah. What are you going to do? We feel deeply in yeah. the world and we just get... We tank a lot. feel a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. I don't let myself go... I don't seem to go down, but I get anxious. Yeah. And yeah. overwhelmed. That's yeah. my thing. Like, I'll just... like. I, 
I don't have the, the I don't have the depression because I don't let it. My I grew up with a depressive. Yeah. So there's some part of me that's hyper vigilant yeah. about like I'm not going to be not, him. Yeah. I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's it's going to slip out sideways yeah. in an anxious way. There's exactly. a whole theory that like anxiety and depression are the same thing. Right. And that um, I believe that that basically you know type A people don't really get depressed because when that thing that feeling that comes to you actually turns you towards anxiety because you fight against it. Right, know? but then, like, if you get too anxious, then, you know, phase two is the, like, the paralysis. Yes, that's yeah, the tank. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, and yeah. it's like, for, for me, that's the, that uh, reveals itself as exhaustion yeah. more than darkness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank God. That's a, that's a nice brand. Yeah. So, okay, so that's something to look forward to. Let's talk about the other projects. You've, you were great on Transparent, as I said. Yeah. I've not seen you act. Perhaps you were in some of your older movies. No. I haven't seen them all. This is my first acting job. Really? Yeah. It was great. You play a Jew. Yeah. And you, it's sort of a challenging, disturbing character. He's very that, different from me. He's, yeah, all he's, you, you guys play shit very different He's a total dick. Yeah. He ha- I mean, he has... Is he, he a has, dick or is he broken? He has more sex in the first two episodes than you've had in your entire life. It's Let's true. face that. Good yeah. for you. Yeah. How'd that feel Sex with more people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sex with more people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really different and fun, and I. Uh, it's weird to... Um, be 40 and like find a whole new thing that I like to do which doesn't seem that different it's very adjacent to writing and directing but it is nothing like you writing let, and you directing you let the uh, you let the 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 scene eater here take up all the screen time. The baby, the baby gets to do what he wants. The baby gets to do what he wants. That's right. Everybody's like well why didn't you do this sooner? Yeah. It's like I, and the answer I swear to God is since we had the double Panasonic VHS camera yeah. I I in was three and a half, in nineteen eighty yeah. two. I was I was old, three years older. I could I knew how to operate it. Yeah, and so uh, Mark would act and I would shoot. And literally up until Togetherness, I've been shooting physically, and Mark has been acting. So it although our friends have encouraged me to try yeah. it, yeah, it's just never been. I'm literally behind the camera. Did, now, did you? just go with your gut on it or did you talk to mark about it or did you like it's weird because i talk to actors on especially people like me who come about it through you know i didn't train to be an actor yeah yeah you didn't either nope none of us did we're i think all three of us share a thing where like we were maybe like writers makers of stuff that accidentally fell into it but it's interesting because with togetherness you make some pretty solid choices to temper some of your shit into a a real character Mm -hmm. you structured that thing yeah. You know, and I've seen you do it in Lynn's movies, and I've seen you do it in some of your movies. Like, you, you know how to, uh, like, for me, I'll just, you know, what do I have to turn down? You know, like, which part of me <laughs> yeah, do yeah. I turn down? But, like, sometimes you kind of become a different character. Right. Yeah. Now, what, and that's just a natural ability. So, what, what did you sort of employ? Well, the guy's so different from me, and the stuff he says and the stuff he does is so different. So you went right just, from the script. I just went straight in and just yeah. went full blast. I, I got lucky because my roommate in college was a guy named Lee Cohen, who's a Jew from, from Chicago. Yeah. I spent four years with him. He looks exactly like me. Everyone thought we were twins in yeah. college. He is a music manager. He managed Dandy Warhols. Am I saying too much about Lee Cohen right no. now? Yeah, you are. No, I am hey, totally. Lee. Hey, Lee Cohen, what's up, dude? Just know um, we Lee, love you. We've uh, always loved he's you. He's in town right now. I'm yeah. actually seeing him tomorrow. Uh, and so I kind of channeled him. Like he has <laughs> did this you tell stuff. Him that? Yeah, I did tell him that. I even talked to him about it before. Um, yeah, I talked to him about it before. Uh-huh. I was like, dude, I'm going to pull you into this thing. Yeah. I'm doing this whole new thing, and it's like deep East Side Jew thing, and I got to go for it, and you know, I just want to kind of have your blessing. you know. And he was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, go for it. Wow. So Lee helped you out. 
Yeah. And I, the Dandy Warhols for a while. Right. And Dandy Warhols. <laughs> Thank you, Lee Cohen, Dandy Warhols. But but uh, you guys have a lot going on, and Togetherness is uh, February 21st, and then you're working on the third season, and you have uh, a movie in development for Netflix. We got we a couple of movies. Four movies we're making for Netflix. I'm available for a small part in any of those films. Excellent. Is that a, you got something for me? Great talking to you guys. Love. Wait, wait, wait what was your star meter again? <laughs> 5,000. Yeah, we got something, we got something small for you. We got something good for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice, what, if nice I get my, spot. what if I get my star meter up to yeah. yours? If you get yeah. your star meter up to 2,600, come talk to us. All right. Thanks, fellas. <laughs> workers. They're workers. I like to do Plots Brothers. That's the first time I met Jay, and I, and I, and I, I liked him. I was glad that he, his brother let him talk. I don't even know where to, to start with Herb Alpert in terms of, you know, if you don't know who he is. This, this guy is a legend, a fucking legend in the, uh, in the music biz. I mean, you may have known about, you know, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. You may have heard uh, of, 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 of A Taste of Honey and all. You know, he's had, he's had so many fucking hits, man. I mean, he's had so many hits and it, like forever, for decades. And then he, um, and then he like started, you know, A&M Records. And, you know, he's sort of responsible for uh, the Carpenters. And, you know, and all, all the way up, you know, through like, you know, Janet Jackson. I mean, it, it's just, I'm sort of fascinated with the, uh, with the, with the music business. And, um, and, and, you know, I always knew that he was a big deal. I knew he was the A in A&M Records. And I, 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 j- I jumped at the opportunity to talk to him. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Herb Alpert's uh, record, Come Fly With Me, is available now. Still out there playing the music, too, with his wife. It's amazing. I remember you because my parents had a copy of... Um... Whip, Cream, and Other Delights. No. Oh, okay. No, it was the one where you got your hand up, the girl on your arm. What now, my love? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. okay. So I just I remember that cover. I remember you. I, you know, I was young. I was eight or nine. I'm like, who, who the fuck is that guy? Yeah, that's me. That was <laughs> me. That was me. I'm still here. And you're 80. Uh, I think so. Let me check my ID. Hang on. Yeah, I'm 80. I'm excited, man. I uh, because I'm sort of fascinated with the the music business. And when I look at your career, it's a it's astounding. Like you're you're one of those guys that I I don't know if you could really quantify who could have had a bigger impact on music, both in recording and in, in, in creating a label that was powerful, man. Yeah. Well, it was uh, a different time, man. We couldn't do it today. I mean, we tried to start, if we tried to start A&M uh, in today's uh, music industry, I don't think it would happen. Well, walk me through it. Cause I, I am a little like, uh, in, like I, I love uh, old stories about how the music business used to be. Cause it used to be a pretty intimate business. Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in L.A. I'm a native of Los Angeles. Really? Yeah, but the music business in 62, that's when we started A&M, was totally different. Man, there were little labels operating out of the trunks of their car, you know. You just had to deliver the single, right? Was that really yeah, the well, market? Well, you could come to a, you know some radio stations with a master, and if the program director happened to like it, he'd either put it on immediately or they'd put it in the meeting, and then you'd get you know immediate feedback, which obviously doesn't happen anymore. In sales and in making hits, uh, if well, they played it on the radio. Yeah, if people dug it, I mean, right. you can't you can't <laughs> yeah. anticipate that. Yeah. So how? So you grew up in what part of L.A.? 
Well, I was born in East L.A. and then grew up in, uh, you know, around uh, Fairfax and Beverly. Oh, yeah. Are, you, are yeah. your folks from around here? I mean, they were they were they originally from well, here? No, my dad was from Russia. My dad was uh, a real hero. You know, he, when he was 16 years old, he took a boat from Russia alone, not speaking the language. You know, he just spoke Yiddish at the time uh-huh. and landed in uh, uh, Ellis Island and little by little, you know, worked his way to... Uh, you know, through the states, I think he was working in Chicago for a while, then Los Angeles, and that's where he met my mom. And those are amazing stories because my family's Eastern European Jewish, and like I, I, they came in from Russia through Ellis Island. But I, did you have you gone back? To, how far with the roots have you gone? Did you ever get fascinated with like uh, where he came from in Russia? And- well, I didn't I haven't been to Russia, but you know, I was in, in uh, Ellis Island. And you can felt you can feel that vibe, man. You can oh, right. really feel all the things that happened through there, and it's yeah. pretty pretty. Uh, Pretty amazing. Did it? Was it the same name, or did they change the name? No, it's the same name. No kidding, yeah, Alpert, right? So that that made it all the way from Russia. Made it from Russia, but uh, you know he was really a, an unusual guy. He little by little brought his entire family over from uh, from Russia. Brothers, sisters, his uh, brothers and sisters, right? And and what what did he do? He was a tailor. Yeah, yeah. He was a really good tailor too. Yeah, you know he had a like a flair for design and. He used to, we used to walk down, um, you know, Wilshire Boulevard and uh-huh. he'd get out his little sketch pad and when he'd see something he'd like, he'd sketch it and then try to, you know, improve on it or, or do his own little take on it. Did he have a shop? He had a, he was manufacturing ladies' coats and suits in downtown Los Angeles. Oh, really? Yeah. Were they were originals or knockoffs or how? No, they were originals. Oh, they wow. They were originals. Um Knockoffs. Well, that's that's you know it's possible. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, no, it's just that's the schmata business, right? Yeah, what now he's in the schmata business. Yeah, yeah, sure, man. And your mom, uh, did she do stuff? Or? Well, my mom played violin for a while, but she was um, she was a great spirit. You know, she really was encouraging for me. You know, every time I, you know, I started playing trumpet when I was eight. So when I was lax and I didn't practice, you know, she'd always get on me for that and. Yeah. Said, so, you know, you gotta you gotta keep it up and then I'd play and then neighbors would yell and then she'd open her window and say, Shut up, my his kids practicing you know? <laughs> So she was cool. So eight years old, like what kind of music do you remember playing at eight? Well, I I couldn't play at all, man. You know, I was lucky because there was this uh, music appreciation class in my grammar school, Mm -hmm. which obviously doesn't happen anymore, and which should happen because uh, I think you know to rub elbows with some type of form of creativity at a young age. I think really, really, you know, puts a nice foundation. You know, kids get to get to feel their own uniqueness. Yep, and uh, hopefully they can feel the uniqueness in others and. uh, might be a whole different story. And they make sounds. You oh, know, yeah. They, yeah. It's like, uh, be, and, like my mom was very supportive of guitar playing, you know, so like it, it changed my life. Oh, yeah. So anyways, I, there was this, uh, in this class, there yeah. was a table filled with various instruments. I happened to pick up the trumpet, tried to make a sound out of it, couldn't do that. You, I, you, you, I thought you'd just blow hot air into yeah, the sure. mouthpiece, but, you know, I finally realized... Yeah. I could uh, make the sound, and little by little, you know, this this horn was speaking for me because I was super shy. Yeah, I I just loved the that the idea that this horn was speaking for me, and you know, was, get uh, some attention, blast out. I some got sound. attention and uh, got the chicks and yeah. the whole thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so many of people I talk to in the arts are like, you ask them why they got into it, and they're like, chicks. <laughs> yeah, well, that wasn't my motivation at front, but right. I mean, it certainly didn't hurt. 
What movie, what music was speaking to you once you started to get the hang of it? Well, I was, you know, I, I was classically trained. I had, I had a, you know, a teacher. Actually, he was from Russia as well, and I studied with him for about 12 years, and it was mainly, you know, playing Beethoven, Bach, and, all, you know. The, yeah? And you played in orchestra time. a bit? I played in junior symphony orchestras, and then at one point I was playing in, in this uh Orchestra and I, uh, we were playing uh, pictures at an exhibition by Mazorsky. Uh-huh. Ravel did the arrangements, and I was so enamored by the sound of the orchestra, I was really knocked out by it. So I was leaning forward, listening to everybody, and it was like this stereotype effect. And I forgot to come in. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to come in my part. <laughs> yeah. So I realized at that point there, you know, that, uh, I'm not sure I want to make this type of music. You know, <laughs> yeah. and then I started listening to Louis Armstrong and Miles and in, in, you know the jazzers and I. It, that looked like fun. They man, these guys were closing their eyes and just playing whatever was coming out. And, and to me, uh, that's what I wanted to try to do. But 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 from that early education, you you learned how to read music. You learned how to arrange music. You learned how to write it. Well, I learned how to how to read it for sure. Uh, arranging is a whole other animal. I mean, you got to really study that. It's not like you can play the trumpet and you can be an arranger. It, yes, it's. You know, I, when I got to the keyboard, I started playing piano, mm-hmm. and I realized, you know, that's that's the arrangers need to have that because then you can you can see the harmonies. If you're playing just a you know a, a single tone instrument like a trumpet trombone, right? That's just one sound that's coming out. So you, you can't really play out the other parts. Yeah, you can't. And you know, when you put your hand on uh, you know ten different notes, uh, yeah, you know, it's a whole different feeling. You pretty good at piano now. No, I'm I'm good at just fooling around with chords and moving uh-huh. moving it around. But and that's you know the genesis of the Tijuana Brass was I was fooling around with this song that uh, a friend of mine wrote called Twinkle Star, which was a beautiful melody, but it's, it was really corny, man. He had a, he gave me a demo of it, and it sounded like a, a music box, you know, do 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 that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I you know I was arranging it, and at that time i was going to bullfights in the uh springtime down and, tijuana in tijuana there was a, you know a major uh place you know they yeah. had the greatest matadors from around the world and so i got inspired by that I, I never heard mariachi music but i heard this band that was in the stands at, in tijuana and they were like announcing the different events right so uh I tried to translate that into uh, a record, you know, when I heard da 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 and the bull would charge out. Right. And then this one guy came out, it was named Carlos Arusa. He would come out on a white horse. The reins were around his waist. He would never touch the reins with his hands, and he was just giving the horn the horse directions by the movement of his body. Mm-hmm. And he was, it was exciting, man. Yeah. And then he'd uh, you know, do whatever he had to do, put the banderillas in to lower the bull's head or mm-hmm. whatever they do for that. And he put the horse away and he walked across the marina, uh, the arena and he wouldn't look at the bull. The bull would just be looking at him you know, with, with smoke yeah, yeah, coming yeah. out of his nose and he wouldn't yeah. even honor him and he'd be like within three feet of him yeah. looking the other way and the crowd would go crazy and you know, I was drinking wine at the time and <laughs> yeah. the bota. And it, yeah. was, it was, a, you know, I tried to translate that whole feeling into a song. And, you, and that changed the face of uh, certainly instrumental and popular music. I mean, you're, the Tijuana Brass did. Well, I, I can't say it changed the face of it, but it was certainly uh, a moment. And when the the lonely bull happened, it just like took off like a rocket. You know? I think it was that tone. I think it was almost like a, an international flavor that people hadn't really heard, and it's so compelling. 
It was a good song, and uh, you know the arrangement was good, and it worked. And you know, it, it's like when that door opens, man, it really opens because you know, three days into the release of that record, we were getting calls from distributors from all over the world. International hit, yeah, and wanted to have us, you know, to give them the distribution rights, which my partner Jerry Moss, you know, doled it out, and uh, the Lonely Bull was happening. I got a call from um, our distributor in Washington D.C. He, he says, "Man, you guys got a smash! That Acapulco nineteen twenty two is happening." I said, "Brother, you're on the wrong side." <laughs> So, you know, when it starts happening, man, when the door opens for you, it swings. <laughs> the the B-side did well, too? Yeah, well, we eventually had them turn it over, but uh -huh. the, yeah, the B-side was happening, too. Well, the language you're, you're speaking around music, like, you know, I, how, what was in between, like, learning how to play and, and what were your first sort of forays into the music business? Well, I played, you know, dances, parties uh, in high school. We had right. a little group, a trio. And um, mostly standards, you know, yeah, mostly yeah. standards, and you know, little, little flashy stuff. Your triple ton because of the uh, uh, classical background. I, I could do some fancy things on the on the horn. Uh -huh. Not very creative, but it was like fancy, right? Impressive. Yeah, it was impressive. Yeah, it, it was impressive enough because there was um, this was in the fifties, and in L.A. there was this show called High Talent Battle. Mm -hmm. And they were pitting high school bands against one another. And, yeah. and we entered and we won. We, you know, like for six weeks in a row, we were seen on television. And because of that, uh, you know, we started playing parties and weddings. and Working as a musician. Yeah, yeah, and right, that's right. And I got my uh, my card, my union card at 16 and off we go. Had to, I, had, I didn't. I, at that time, I, I wasn't sure I was going to be a professional musician. What was I, the other option? I didn't have another option. You know, <laughs> girls. <Right. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so when do you start like writing songs? Because I know that there. When I when I think about that time, I mean, we're talking about what the late fifties. Uh, when you're in high school. No, early 50s. Early 50s. Yeah, I graduated high school in 1953. So, like, the music business, like, there were guys around writing. The, the deal was you tried to write hip-hop songs, right? Well, in 53, I was... I, no, I didn't write any songs then. I, I I was drafted in the Army after high school. Well, I went to college for, like, mm -hmm. about a year and a half. I went studying to, what? I went to SC. I was studying uh, music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... Uh, I wasn't into it. I didn't feel it. I, I wasn't... Uh, you, you, the timing was off. Sure. And I got drafted. So when I was uh, signing up or whatever I had to do, I told them, look, at the only thing I know how to do is play the trumpet. That's all I can do. And mm -hmm. I, I lied a bit. I said, I played with Count Basie. I played with Duke Ellington. I, I mean, I'm just a trumpet player, man. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm not a secretary. Yeah, Don't give me a gun or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, uh, they sent me to band school. In wow. Fort Knox, Kentucky, for uh, I think it was six weeks. For like marching band kind of stuff. No, or? it was a band school to just to uh, organize the, all musicians did for, you, for the army. What did you learn something there? I learned that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of good players there from all over the country. So, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I had a good I aha there. Uh huh. So just about your skill set. Yeah. You know, and I realized that if I was ever going to be a professional, I really had to hone in on a particular direction. And did that? Uh, did you play revelry and that kind of stuff? Or? No, not at band school. I did later. I was sent to uh, the, 
the Presidio uh-huh. in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I spent uh, almost two years there. You were stationed there? I was stationed in Presidio. It was a fab- fabulous place. It's beautiful there. Oh, it was gorgeous. Oh, and, right and, there at uh, the bridge, yeah. yeah. So there were 12 trumpet players there. And every twelfth day, you'd go to the federal cemetery and play taps. Uh huh. You know, so that I had that. And then, and then you're in San Francisco, which is sort of happening, right? I love San Francisco. In that, in that time, in the, like the mid to late fifties, it must have been amazing. Uh yeah, it, it was amazing, and I think it still is amazing. Sure. Although my wife doesn't like; she's not crazy about it. Lonnie thinks it looks like a like a movie set. <laughs> well, it does. It's that beautiful in a way. <laughs> yeah. But what what was going on there? Did you tap into the music scene? Oh or? yeah, yeah. I li- oh, they had a great uh, jazz club there called the Black Hawk. I used to see Miles and uh, Dave Brubeck. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Cal Jader. Uh-huh. And, yeah, all the greatest. Were there were there comics working with those guys at that time? Uh, well. You, like, did you see, like, Lenny or Jonathan Winters? Well, I, I, we played with Lenny once. You know, yeah, this is when the Tijuana Brass started. We're, we're moving up in, in time now. But uh, we were playing at the um, Crescendo in... in, in uh, on, on Sunset Boulevard, uh-huh. owned by Gene Gene Norman. Uh huh. Lenny was playing um, upstairs, and, we, and he he did his thing, and then we came on. Uh, he was a knockout. I mean, this guy could have you laughing, rolling in the on the ground, man. Yeah. I mean, he was that funny. And I remember after we we played the set, I went downstairs, and Count Basie, man, was playing in, in the bottom uh, section of uh-huh. this club. And and Lenny was up on the top of the piano, man. He was introducing Count Basie. Yeah. And he says, you know why I like Basie? And he says, why, why, why? Because he has big black balls. <laughs> and he jumps off the piano and, and runs out. That was it? Yeah, that was it. I mean, the guy was, he was, he was special. Yeah. Did, did, you, uh, did you get to hang out with him at all? No, not at all. But, uh, you know, I talked to him a couple of times. Was, it, was he at his peak then or coming? He I, was at his peak. No, oh, that, was, that was the height of his, his, his thing. So when you're seeing, like, Brubeck and Miles and, and all these cats, I, like, who, who <clears throat> like, did you... Because you came a little after that scene, like the bebop scene? Yeah. And who were some of your, your role models in that, you know, in that era? Well... Like Chet Baker? Well, I love Chet Baker. Yeah, Chet Baker. Uh, you know, I gave Chet Baker one of my trumpets, actually. Uh-huh. I became friendly with him, and, uh, I, you know, he was a genius. He was the influence on you, though, right? He was an influence, but there were a lot of influences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was one of them because uh, you know Chet didn't know music. I mean, he didn't know a C chord from his left elbow. Uh-huh. You know, he was just—he was an instinctive musician. He could play through a minefield of chord changes without uh, you know knowing what he was doing. But right. was just, he was doing it. Yeah, and um, strung out too. Well, he was uh, unfortunately he was his worst enemy. Yeah, and. I used to see him at the Hague with the, the Jerry Mulligan Quartet, uh-huh. and I fell in love with that sound and and Jerry as well because uh, they they they'd play a set and then Jerry would walk up to the microphone and say in this blurry eyes staring out he'd say shortly <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was him and then I became good friends with Jerry after a while because uh, you know he recorded for A&M uh-huh. along with Stan Getz and, and Chet did a uh, a record for us too but yeah I gave Chet a, a, a good old Martin C- Committee trumpet that uh-huh. he loved to play and 
you know, he pawned that thing two days later. So, oh, really? Yeah. It's hard to deal with the guys who are strung out like I, that. I tell you, and he was a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah. He was very sensitive, obviously, but uh, just did not have a handle on himself. Yeah, like Art Pepper, too, right? Like Art was Art, like... Art was... Uh, that's tragic. I mean, Art, Art was absolutely brilliant yeah and i was i had this idea i was going to do this with him at at a&m we had these acoustic chambers yeah on the lot and i was i wanted to put him in a chamber and let him just wail just yeah. play whatever he right. wanted to play and that right. uh, he passed out uh, passed on about uh, two or three weeks before this might have happened oh really yeah yeah, he fought it too, man. Like I mean, those that that heroin just knocked yeah, out a lot it, of cats, it, it, right? It's just uh, it's just no good. Yeah, yeah. And did you ever see who was it? Was uh, Art Pepper's mentor or his guy Lester? Was it Lester Young? Is that well? Who? Yeah. Well, he was everyone's mentor. Right. That, that, was, that yeah. was the president. The president. Yeah. That was the name that Billy Holiday gave him. Oh yeah. The, the prez. Yeah. But uh, you know, most sax players, when you talk to them, they, you know, it goes from. Uh, Probably Coleman Hawkins to Lester Young, and then it's the new guys, you know. Charlie Parker. Well, Charlie. Well, Charlie Parker was on his own planet, man. This guy was, you know, he was really unusually special. And a hundred years from now, you, you will still hear him, and it's still unique. He, he was. Did yeah. you see him? Never saw him. Oh yeah. Never saw him. And in in terms of trumpet, like so, Chet was sort of responsible for what they called the the California sound. Yeah, it was the cool school. Yeah. Uh, but there were a lot of guys, you know, uh, Shorty Rogers lived in L.A. He was a really, he had a, a band called Shorty Rogers and the Giants. And that, Gart Pepper played in that band. Uh-huh. Uh, Shelly Mann was his drummer. And he had a lot of great musicians with him. And, and, and Shorty was a really good trumpet player, too. Did you like to play that bebop? I mean, like when you were younger? No, I didn't know how to do it. it, it you know, you, the transition from, from classical music to jazz is pretty dramatic. It's not that easy. Right. You know, in classical music, you're, you're, you're working all these scales, diatonic scales. Mm -hmm. and uh, It's a different, you know, jazz is a particular language. You know, right. Unless you can play into that language... It doesn't sound good. It, it can sound really corny. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So, <laughs> right. I was really careful with that. Yeah, but you put you got to play with some of those dudes in your career, certainly. Well, I got to. Uh, I feel feel more comfortable in in, in that whole genre because I mean, to me, jazz is jazz is really special. I mean, yeah. I think jazz is what we're all looking for. Right. Jazz is freedom. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's the thing. I think that's what exemplifies jazz the most. Is it's, it's you get to do your thing, within, yeah, yeah. Within a within a you know a group setting, so it's and it doesn't hinge on commercial success or 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 necessarily uh, uh, you know context. Like if you're in it, you're in it. Yeah, it's just jazz. Well, you know that's the sad sad part of what's happening in this country because uh -huh. a dear friend of mine was Stan Getz. I mean, mm -hmm. we were like brothers the last four years of his life. He used to go to Europe. Red carpet service, man. It didn't care whether he had a hit record or not. They just remembered that he was a great musician. They hung on with him. He, whatever country he went into. Respect. Would, respect. Mm-hmm. He'd come back to L.A. and, uh, you know, it'd be a whole different story. What do you attribute that to, that the, the that, gla that jazz is so specific and, and so niche in this country, as opposed to, like, France or anywhere where they have a true appreciation for all forms of music? Yeah. Lack of education, I think. Yeah. You know, uh We've 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 managed to carve out the the arts program and music in the public and some of the private schools, so that's what you get. You people are 
coming up to their own water level, and it's, it's kind of low at the moment. Right, right. Now, okay, so you, you're taking all that stuff in, so when do you sort of, what's your first foray into pop music before the brass? Well, uh, let's see. Before the brass, you know, when I heard this record by uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford, mm -hmm. but Les was uh, layering his guitars mm -hmm. on this record mm -hmm. and his voice, uh, his wife's voice, uh, Mary Ford as well. So I started doing that at home in my little studio. I had a yeah. little, uh, in my garage, I built a, a room inside a room. And Shit I, happens in garages, man. Uh, I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I started fooling around with layering my horn on this, uh, from tape machine to tape machine, and I came up with this sound that said to me, mm-hmm, that's good. And that was the genesis of the, the Tijuana Brass sound. And and who were the guys who, uh, how'd you recruit the dudes for the original Tijuana Brass? There were no dudes. It was like, there was no group <laughs> until after I recorded the Wh uh, Whipped Cream and Other Delights album. Yeah. Then I got a group together. But no, I was using, you know, there was this, um, the first record was, was pretty, uh, gee whiz, I was playing piano on it and singing parts and, mm -hmm. and playing percussion, you know. Did everything. Yeah, and played the trumpets, and it was a, it cost a couple hundred bucks to make. Mm -hmm. uh, then after a while, when we did the uh, Lonely Bull album, and album after that, we were using, you know, these guys called the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, I, uh, Danny Tedesco did a documentary about his dad, Tommy. He did a fantastic job with this. I mean, you know, honoring his dad, who was a Beautiful. phenomenal uh, guitar player. Yeah. yeah, I knew nothing about uh, uh, any of that until I, I really talked to him, and, and I'm, I'm so happy that he got the rights and got everything he needed to get that out in the right well, way. Well, it really took him a long time oh, to boy, get the yeah. copyright straight and all yeah. that. But he, he he hung on like a like a pit bull. It was yeah. great. Yeah, and, and and just learning about those musicians. Then I saw the Brian Wilson movie and just unbelievable yeah, bunch of people. But, but you you lived in it. Yeah, it was fun to watch those guys because they were uh, very flexible. You uh -huh. know, they uh, they'd go from uh, our session to the Beach Boys to Sinatra to you know wherever, and, and they'd be, and, you know. And I think they got off on it. I think oh, that totally they, got to be off challenged. On it. And they were. In the moment, you know, yeah, yeah. Hal was uh, totally consumed with what I, I was trying to do and is trying to, you know, get into it, you know, yeah. try to see the music through me. And he, he always did it. So, like, you know, you've had like, you've made like, do you even know how many records? No. No. <laughs> a lot. And you've had a lot of number one hits and you've had concurrent hits and you've had, uh, you know, several Grammys. Do you, was there, do you? Like I, I know that music's magic, but like the Tijuana Brass comes and that sound locks in. What was going on culturally in music that you think like just blew everyone's mind about what you were doing? Do you ever think about it? Yeah, I think about it, and I think it all has to do with the song. I think it's all about songs, mm -hmm. good melodies. Yeah, uh, Taste of melody, Honey. I remember ta Taste uh, of Honey was like huge. Yeah, it, it it back it was in the back door, by the way. How so? Well, this after I did the whipped cream album uh finally got a group together a traveling group together uh -huh. my partner loved this song that i did called um third man theme mm -hmm. and taste of honey was on the b side uh-huh so when we got the group together and we were playing at this place in uh in seattle washington the edgewater inn uh -huh. every time i played taste of honey people would go crazy man <laughs> And so I called Jerry. I said, Jerry, I'm telling you, man, there's a focus group here <laughs> that's telling me Taste of Honey is the side, not not third man theme. He says, well, man, you can't dance to it. You can't, It stops and starts and then, you know. I said, tell me. I, look at man. It's, it's Taste of Honey. So we finally turned it over and it became, you know, a big hit. And that was the door opener. That was the door that 
swung so wide that we got you know Ed Sullivan and Dean Martin and all those major shows. And and you had not so to put together a touring band. Who were the guys you chose for that, and why? Well, we auditioned musicians, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, I just chose the guys that I felt could represent what I was doing. And how long did you travel with them? Oh, a long time. Yeah? Yeah, through 1969, from 1966 or 1965 and a half to 69. And that sound, man, I mean, you, it's a very specific sound you you created. You, you know, there there is a, 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 like, you if you hear any of your music, you, you know it's you. And that's a rare thing. Well, it, it 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 might be rare, but that's that's the thing you're all going for. Sure, for a, as an artist, whether you're a dancer, a poet, a, yeah, a, a writer, a disc jockey, you know, sure, it man. You, you go you go for your own thing, you know. And that's what I was doing. I wanted to to express myself. Uh huh. Because I could have done the lonely bull sideways and tried to do you know with the fancy stuff with the same thing. No, I wanted to see how far I could I could push it. There's a swing to it, right? I mean, what do you what do you call your sound? I mean, what, it has a good feel. Yeah, it has a good feel, and you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I can pick on good songs. But I'll tell you what happened when yeah. the lonely bull was was uh, top ten. I got this letter from a lady in Germany uh-huh. who said, "Dear Mr. Albert, thank you for sending me on this vicarious trip to Tijuana." Now, I chuckled when I saw it, and then I thought, wow, that music was so visual for her, it transported her. I mean, uh-huh. I, I want to make visual music, that's what I, and that's pretty much the way I hear it. And the other thing that happened was that, uh, you know, I had this great experience with the great Sam Cooke, and he taught me a lot, and I would... Um, I have this ability, because, you know, I paint, and I sculpt, and I... I, I blow the horn and do my art stuff because I'm 85% in the right side of my brain. Yeah. I have become an audience to what I do. You know, when I uh, listen to a recording of mine or when I'm recording Mm -hmm. and I play it back, I'm not listening to the trumpet player. I'm Mm -hmm. listening to the overall feeling. Does it feel good? Yeah. Is this something I would want to buy myself if I heard it or, you know... Does it touch me? And that's the measure. And that's You can detach from it a little bit. I can detach from it completely, man. I have nine huge totems at the field museum in chicago at mm-hmm. the moment and sculptures sculptures uh-huh. yeah in bronze uh-huh. from 13 to 18 feet tall. wow and, and when i um saw them a week later because we happened to be playing in chicago i i um, went to the museum and i looked at these pieces i said wow man that's good <laughs> i mean yeah i know it sounds corny but man that's the way i feel Hey man, if you can, you know, if you can have that detachment and that appreciation and know you're done with something and you're proud of it, I mean, what, that's the best. I mean, we can be one of those guys that's like never good enough. What do you want to live well, like that I, for? I, I think you have to believe in what you're doing. And uh-huh. I mean, if you don't believe in it, why are you expecting someone else to believe in it? Right, you know? right. So, yeah, I do have that uh, feeling about what I do, but that other little dimension of you know, when I produced records, you know, not my own records, but uh, other other artists, and I'd have uh, the the drummer or the bass player, or the piano player in, in the in the control room, and we're listening to a playback. Well, the drummer's saying he's not hearing enough drums. The bass player wants to hear more bass. And, you <laughs> yeah, know? Of course, right? So you got to block that out. And and just I, you know, I just I would go for the feel. Does it feel right? When it feels right for me, I stop. Yeah. And I had that experience uh, in 1968 or so. We recorded this guy's in love with you. Yeah. Which was a number one record. And you did vocals on that, which wasn't your I thing, right? I did a vocal. Yeah. Because of this television show I was doing, and Burt Backrack did the arrangements, and I was 
We we had the track, and I was at Gold Star Studios, yeah. and I wanted to see whether my voice would sound good on this track if it was in the right key. Yeah, but, yeah. So I'm I'm in the, the studio singing the song, and Bert and some of the other musicians are in the control room. I, I finish it, and I walk into the control room, and they said, don't touch it. I said, don't touch what? <laughs> he said, don't touch it, man. It was just great. Man, it was honest. It felt good. You know, and I listened to it, and I said, yeah, it does. It does feel good. I mean, there's little things that I would probably could have improved on it, uh-huh. but uh, the feeling was there. I think it's all about feeling. Sure, man. And, and that was a huge hit for you. And you, you It was number one. It was the, you didn't do much singing. No, no, I don't think of myself as a singer. But if you get the right song and the right arrangement, yeah, hello, and the feelings it, there. Yeah, it's it's all about feeling, man. That's what I try to impress on uh, on artists that uh, you know are with A and M. Yeah. What about Sam Cooke? Oh man. Well, I wrote uh, you know Wonderful World with him with Lou Adler. Me and Sam wrote uh, Don't Know Much About. Yeah, sure. History. I know that we song. That yeah. Song. And Sam was a, an, an unusual artist, man. He had he had magic. He had that it thing, whatever that is. I, I bought. I got a collection of the soul. What was his gospel group? The Soul Searchers was it? The soul the soul Stirrers. Stir, yeah. Oh my God. No, man. It, it, Sam Amazing. was the lead singer. Yeah. And uh, he had uh, a, just an innate ability to do the right thing. You know, he'd come in with this notebook filled with lyrics. You uh-huh. know, and he'd look at me and say, Herbie, what do you think of this lyric here? Yeah. And I'd look at it and the lyric really looked really corny, man. Uh-huh. It really looked like trite stuff. Yeah, yeah. I said, well, what, it, what does it sound like? What, what's the song like? He'd pick up his guitar and holy moly, man, the thing would transform into something fabulous, yeah, you know? Yeah. He had it because his passion was there, his intent was there, and I think that's, the, you know, that's the whole thing. What, what and that's what you learned with him? Uh, that there was a magic? Oh, I learned a lot more. You know, he was he was the first black artist to have his own record company. He mm-hmm. had SAR Records. Yeah. And he was auditioning this artist uh, for his company and I was in the control room with Lou and Sam was uh, listening as well and this artist came in. He was from the Caribbean. Beautiful guy, man. Green eyes and tall and yeah. playing guitar and singing and I'd, I'd look at him and Sam said, what do you think? I said, man, I think the guy's great. You ought to sign him. He says, well, turn your back on him for five minutes and let me know what you think. I turned my back, and the guy wasn't happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's when he said, man, it doesn't matter if you, what you look like, or you're yeah. black, you're white, you're, yeah. what kind of echo chamber you're using. He said, the people are listening to a cold piece of wax. Uh-huh. And it either makes it or it don't. And it's all about, you know. So I got into that, the feel of it. And then anytime I'd audition an artist at A&M. It was always with my eyes closed, you know. Because of that experience. Because of that experience, because I didn't want to be intimidated. I didn't want somebody who could dance like Michael Jackson and and just, Yeah, distract you from Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that guy's a hell of a showman, and you don't know that he's terrible. Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, of course, it's taken another turn, you know, with MTV and all that. When that came in, all of a sudden, people were listening with their eyes, you know? Sure, and now the spectacle of a a pop show is insane, dude. I mean, it's like, and some people don't even sing their own tracks. Yeah, and it's like it's it's insane. So, what was the incentive for for starting a label at that time? What year was that? Well, that was 1962, and like I was said before, there were like a little, like a lot of little labels right. hanging around, just yeah. uh, you know, taking a chance. And we were, we weren't starting a, a major company. We were just you wanted to release a record, that's right. an amount of, of yours. Yeah, yeah. 
And so uh, the, the, the original uh, label was called Carnival Records. And how'd you meet uh, uh, your partner? Well, uh, Lou Adler and I were working for a company in uh, New York, and the head promotion man went to school with Jerry, Jerry Moss. Mm-hmm. And uh, he introduced us, introduced me, and, and Jerry at the time was in New York and had desires to move to L.A. And Lou you, introduced you? No, no, this uh, Ted Fagan, who was the head promotion man of this company. Okay. And how'd you know Lou? Okay, Lou. Lou used to date my ex-wife, and uh, <laughs> I met Lou when I got out of the Army, and Lou was uh, married to my ex-wife's girlfriend. Uh-huh. And uh, we became friends. We just hit it off like we clicked. Lou yeah. and I just clicked um, immediately. What did he do then? Well, he was in the insurance. He had a, he was selling insurance, uh-huh. uh, whatever that called, and then he was working for a, a clothier, Zeidler and Zeidler. And he he write poetry, so uh-huh. he wrote a lot of poetry, and I took the poetry and wrote some music to the poetry, and then that that started it. So he was like he came in as a as a kind of a songwriter in a way. Well, yeah, we were both songwriters at that uh-huh. point, and then we 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 had about six songs that we made demonstration records of, and we took them around to various publishing companies, and we took it to one company. Uh, uh, we took it to Specialty Records, and Sonny Bono was the A&R director at that time of Specialty uh-huh. Records. And we had to go downstairs in this little funky room, and Sonny listened to the thing, and he said, um, I don't think you guys are right for this business. You know, he tried to talk us out of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> And that's a young Sonny before Phil Spector, before anything. Uh, yeah, that mm-hmm. was before that. Yeah. We finally got a job with Keen Records, K-double-E-N. You and Lou. L- Lou and I, and uh, that time, uh, Sam was their major artist. He had that You Send Me record, which was oh, number yeah. one. And we started working for Bumps Blackwell, who produced Sam's uh, records. As songwriters. As songwriters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just watching people record and learning that bit. What other songs did you write? For in that well, time. we we wrote a song called "All of My Life," which didn't happen. But uh-huh. uh, the the experience I had, which was the aha for me, was uh, we were at uh, radio recorders in Los Angeles, and uh-huh. I was privy to watch this session that this producer, I think he was with Challenge Records, and he was a noted producer and you know, made some hit records. And I was in the control room watching him, and they were rehearsing in the studio. And he got on the horn and said, hey, Plaz Johnson was playing uh, tenor sax. So, uh-huh. And he said, that was great, Plaz, play that again. And Plaz said, did you record it? He said, no, I didn't, but you know what you played, just play the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And Plaz looked at him in disbelief, and I thought, like, holy shit, man, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't believe he, that he, he didn't put it together, that Plaz just played something off the top of his head and, and yeah. he couldn't re- reproduce it. <laughs> So, okay, so A&M, it's you and Lou Adler and Jerry, right? Well, no, I left Lou in uh, around 1958 or 9. As a songwriting partner? Yeah, as a a partner because I I was working at a gym when I was in high school, and I used to go to this gym now and then. This guy looked at me, he says, man, you should be in the movies. I said, okay, put me in. You know, I I took his challenge, and he introduced me to some people at uh, Paramount Studios. Oh, yeah. And I uh, took an audition for some things, and I was really green. Man, I couldn't act. And, yeah. Uh, they they liked me, but they said you need you need you know you need to chops. More, yeah, need more chops. So yeah. I started studying. I studied with um, 
Jeff Corey, uh-huh. and then uh, Leonard Nimoy. Oh, really? That was before Leonard, you know, hit the big time. Uh huh. And that was fun, but I realized that Matt wasn't my thing. Yeah. I, I just did you did, do any movies? I, as a musician, as uh-huh. a background. Musician. Which ones? Oh man, I was in twenty or so. Oh really? Oh yeah. Like in the band. In the band, but it, like in the Ten Commandments, I played kettle drum and oh I, I eat a horn. And On those big sets? Oh, the huge sets. Didn't they, DeMille direct that? Who Cecil B. Oh, my oh, God. Let, let me tell you, we, they were, I was playing kettle drums in the idolizing the golden calf uh-huh. scene <laughs> Yeah, as uh, Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and... Um, the the scene was going to open up on my back, you yeah. know. Oh right, yeah. yeah. And I turned around, and and Demille was up in the, you know, the, with the cameraman. I yeah. turned around, I said, "Mr. Demille, do you mind opening up on my face?" You know, and he looked at me in disbelief, <laughs> and he said, "Not this time, kid." <laughs> Give me a shot, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, so, yeah, no, that was a, quite an experience. Cause I was on that movie for like three months. Because the mill would just have extras outside there, just in case he wanted to change, you know, directions and cast a thousands. Oh, it was ridiculous. Doesn't I, happen. And he, and then he was a trip to watch because he had let's say one, two, three. There were five guys around him, mm-hmm. one on each side, and then there was a guy following him with a, with a stool. Mm-hmm. So anytime he wanted to sit down, man, he wouldn't look behind him. He would just sit down, man. Right. And the stool would be there. <laughs> I wonder what that guy's up to. Yeah, and then the other guys were like, you know, if he took off his coat or something, he would just take, you know. Uh-huh. He was kind of one of those guys. It's, old school. He, yeah, real old school. He, he, like, he defined something. He's like the, you know, the, when you have the idea of the stereotypical old director, that's the guy. Yeah, yeah. And With a bullhorn. There are a lot, yeah, really. And there were a lot of, you know, stories floating around with him. Mm-hmm. This lady that was supposedly in his movies, uh, Every movie ever made after the 30s because she called him a ball-headed son of a bitch, you know? Yeah. Because he wouldn't break. No, she said, this was in the 30s and there's a lot of disruption on the set. And yeah. he said, I'm not going to you know, continue until somebody tells me what's the, the deal. And she chimed in and said, I wonder what this ball-headed son of a bitch was going to break for lunch. <laughs> You know, and he looked at her, and, and he he asked her to lunch, and ever since then... That was it, yeah. every movie. Yeah. That's hilarious. So you're in the acting racket for a little while, yeah. and and Lou goes and does his thing, and then how do you do? Uh, how do you meet up with uh, Moss? Well, Moss uh, eventually uh, landed in Los Angeles, and he wanted to do a, a record with a friend of his, um, an actor friend. I helped him put that together, and I, I recorded this record prior to meeting Jerry, uh, called Tell It to the Birds. Mm-hmm. I was singing on that thing because I I, I wanted to really make a demo for I thought it would be good for the Beatles or something. Right, like, right, yeah. yeah. yeah who, who wouldn't want a Beatle right You're sure, right? Okay, so anyways, <laughs> we put that record out under Carnival and uh, it started making some noise and with that, we sold, turned it over to Dot Records at the time. Uh, Wink Martindale was the... Uh, yeah, really? He, yeah, he was the A&R person at... at uh, <laughs> At, at no the dot records, yeah, he, they took it. They gave us like uh, five hundred bucks or, for it, and with that money, we recorded the Lonely Bull, and that was it. And then history was made. Yeah, and that's when that was the beginning of A and M. Oh, nineteen sixty-two. Yeah, wow. Lonely Bull was the first record, and my partner Jerry, you know, he took care of all the uh, the heavy duty stuff because he had a, he had more of a business concept. Need that guy. Yeah, definitely need that guy. You know. 
So Lonely Bull was 101. That was the name that when we... Uh, the number of the... The number of the record. Yeah. I said, well, how come it's so 101? He says, let's let the distributors think we had 100 records out before this one. <laughs> so, and you could get away with that back then. Yeah, so uh, that was good thinking. <laughs> These guys have been around for a while. So you did every record of yours on A&M up until you left A&M for the most part. Yeah. Wow. But the, here's the amazing thing about A&M is like the artists you guys signed. Who was your A&R guy? Well, me and Jerry to that start really? with. Well, there was just the two of us. There, that was it, right? No, there was, it was in my garage. That We started in That's my crazy. garage. Who was, was the first artist you signed? Oh, boy. We signed a, a group uh, called the Ken Jalairs. It was a vocal group. They didn't do much. A couple of nice records. And then we signed George McKern, who was the... The bass singer with the Pilgrim Travelers. I learned a lot from that group, too, by the way. The Pilgrim Travelers were recording for Keen Records. Um, and then Little Bob, you know, the, the brass was, it, we were, you know, really the ones that were keeping A&M alive. You guys were big. You had hits. Yeah. Yeah. But that was uh, like like around 1968 or 7, we picked up We Five. Yeah. That group, and that was the number one record. And then we got, in 1966, we signed Sergio Mendez in Brazil, 66, which was a nice move. And they opened the show for us for uh, some time. And then because of that uh, exposure, and I produced the first couple uh, albums of theirs, they, they, they took off. Yeah. yeah. And then you're off and running as a label. Yeah, then we're off and running, and then, you know, Jerry wanted to get a little harder edge, and we got Joe Cocker and, and Cat Stevens. and. How'd you get all the those guys? Well, the, from London. You know, we, we went you, to... You set up an office Yeah, there? we set up an office in London, and... Wow. You did the Carpenters? Oh, yeah. I signed the Carpenters in 69. Huge. Like, yeah. Right? They were huge. It took a while for them to, to really catch on. It didn't, didn't happen right overnight. And you and Burt Bacharach did his solo stuff with you? Oh, yeah. we had Burt was recording for us. And uh, and then, like, I'm just looking at well, the- Well, Quincy Jones and Janet Jackson and then uh, Super Tramp. The police? The police, for sure. The, the police were outstanding. I mean, first time I saw them in live, I mean, it was like, wow, that, isn't that great? Three guys, man, making that type of sound. Oh, it's amazing. Sting, you know, wrote wonderful songs. and. But you did Humble Pie, you did Free. Yeah. did Joe Jackson. Joe Jackson. I mean, these were like sticks? Yeah. We had, uh, yeah, we had a great roster, and it was... But at some point, you hired A&R guys, right? Oh, yeah, no, we... Yeah, at that point, we really... Uh, we're stretching out but I mean, that was why we sold you know as far as i'm concerned you know we sold the company in 1990 mm -hmm. it started with the two of us then three five ten and all of a sudden we had 500 people i said man this is w way beyond m me having a good time doing this but you had no i mean you, that whole side of the business i i imagine initially was not your uh your goal no, right yeah. and then it just became this amazing thing i mean yeah I when when i first uh had the group with Tijuana Brass before we traveled to to oh, uh, Seattle. That story I told. Uh, we played it in Los Angeles, and <clears throat> we opened the show for uh, Dave Brubeck. Ah, uh. you know. And I remember coming off stage, and Paul Desmond, who was like one of my all-time favorite musicians. You know, he was leaning against the wall as I was coming off, and he was scratching his head. He said, "I don't know what I just heard, but I think I like it." <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Like, it seemed that there was a transition in, in terms of instrumental music. Instrumental popular music has always had its own place in a way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a period in, like, I guess the 30s, 40s, and, and then in the, a bit in the 50s where it was all the music, all dance music was a lot of instrumental. It was big band and swing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it seemed that you were sort of at the beginning of redefining instrumental music as popular music that kind of led to, you know, to all of them, to, you know, Spyro Gyra, Kenny G, all these cats that, that did that. It's a very specific, like, uh, it's a very specific area, right? It seemed like it. You know, it's, uh, unfortunately, now instrumental music is kind of uh, on the back burner. You know, a lot of these stations won't play music if it's just straight instrumental, so. But it was a popular thing for a long it, time. It, yeah, it was very popular. And, and you never stopped playing throughout all, like, throughout all of A&M, you were recording, you know, dozens of records, you didn't stay with the Tijuana Brass, or you? you no, you, I didn't stay with them. We ended in uh, in nineteen sixty nine. Then I got another group together, a little different group of the Tijuana Brass in seventy four. We played for a command performance for the Queen Elizabeth, which oh, was really? a trip. What, yeah. what songs you play? Oh, the Tijuana Brass songs, uh-huh. but uh, with a little different group, and it was you know some other songs as well. But it was quite a moment. How many Grammys? Nine. For for records and production, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. So, as a producer, I've asked this to other music producers who I've talked to. We what what are you servicing? What is the what is the job of a producer when you produ- like when you're producing someone that is not, maybe not even necessarily the type of music that you play? Yeah, it depends who you're producing. And uh, you know, when I did Sergio Mendez after after uh, I did that first album. And Sergio kind of got the hang of it, mm-hmm. you know. In that first album, we had Mashkinata, which was a big uh, hit in clubs and moderate hit in, in uh, on the charts. Uh, I remember in the studio in our studio B, with my feet up on the desk and uh, listening to the music, thinking, "Man, I, I don't have to do anything. It's happening by itself." Yeah. You know? <laughs> so all I have to do is get out of the way of this thing. Yeah, you know, and watch those levels, I guess. Well, not let the engineer do that. Yeah. You know, so it depends on who you're producing. But it's about the songs. It's about making an artist comfortable in the studio. You know, at A&M, in Studio B, I put in this huge crystal embedded into the wall. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of times artists would come in, even if they weren't recording in that particular studio, they'd, they'd be in front of that that crystal like, like they were in... Uh, Jerusalem, uh-huh, the wailing yeah. wall, yeah, you know, yeah. davening against the thing and with the thing, and I don't know what they were thinking about. Maybe. Well, you know, I guess we got to leave room for a little magic. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that word. That's that's the word that that strikes me about art. Mm-hmm. There, there's a mystery mm-hmm. about art. What makes something that makes you want to listen to it over and over again, or a piece of sculpture that you know gives you a rush, mm-hmm. and, or a painting, mm-hmm. or walking in front of a Jackson Pollock painting and getting it. Mm-hmm. If you think too hard and you try to analyze it, man, you ain't going to find it. No, you got to let it hit you. Yeah, and I think that's what art is. It's that mystery. What is that thing? You yeah, know? it's. thank God they haven't figured out how to quantify it. Yeah. so They I, try. Well, so do I. I'm chasing it all the time because you know, what is that thing that makes me feel good when I hear a particular song mm-hmm. or when I'm playing and I get a little you know charge up the back? Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's it. So once you you left, uh, I mean, you, you stayed at A and M after you sold it for a long time. Uh, just for a couple of years, yeah. No, it's kind of changed hands, and it it changed. 
what they had promised Jerry and I, you know, it, it kind of morphed into a more corporate type of thing. Our, our thing was not corporate at all. It was like Jerry and I, and we'd make decisions quickly. And, and you knew everybody in a way. Yeah, well, smaller business not when of. there was 500 people. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. yeah. when we wanted to sign an artist, yeah. I said, I'm signing the Carpenters. Yeah. Yeah. He said, great. You know, that was it, it. It wasn't like he had, you know, had to pass judgment on it. Uh-huh. And, and whatever he wanted to sign, we signed. And where'd you find them? I heard a tape, yeah, and I heard the tape, and I uh, put this tape on in my office, and did the Sam Cooke thing. I was sitting on my couch, closed my eyes, listening to this music, and it felt like this voice, Karen's voice, was like s- sitting next to me or something. There was something powerful about her mm-hmm. her voice, even though she didn't think she was a singer. Man, she was playing drums on these right. demos, but she had that uh, certain something. I met them. And realize, you know, it wasn't the music that I loved to m- listen to myself, but I, 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 I recognized their passion for what they were doing. Yeah. And, and it was come from a heavy place, it turns out. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it took a while. I mean, there's a whole story connected with uh, the success and how it came about. But it's, uh, you know, the first uh, year or so, uh, I think some of the people in my own company were in doubt why uh, I signed them. You uh-huh. know, they thought they were maybe a little too light, too... Uh, too cute, whatever. Uh-huh. And then I gave them Close to You, that song that uh, Burt Backrack and Hal David wrote, and that was the one that did it. And it did it because uh, they recorded it, and I listened to it, and I said, no, man, it's not right. It's, it's, it's not heavy enough. It needs more artillery. Mm-hmm. They recorded it again, and Karen was still playing drums mm-hmm. on it, and I uh, rejected it. And then the third time, they got the Wrecking Crew. You know, no, you Joe it. Osborne was playing bass, and Cal was on drums, and they got the, you know, the motor going. Yeah. And then, you know, this great arrangement that Richard did, it was beautiful. And uh, that was the... And that's what did that it. Was the, yeah, the big door opener for them. A&M did some of the first comedy records, didn't they? Uh, we did. Uh, oh, man. This was a mistake. You know, when we played in... Uh, <laughs> In uh, New York for the yeah. first time, I was playing. We were playing at the old Basin Street in New York, mm-hmm. and who was opening the show for us? George Carlin, man, was opening the show, and uh, he was uh, he was fall down funny. I mean, yeah. He came in suit and tie, had short hair, and he was right. talking about commercials and mm-hmm. the weather and all that. And I recorded him, and for some reason. I, our 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 people didn't get it, so it was never released. Really? And man, on on top of that one, in California we played a series of of uh, of colleges with the Tijuana Brass, and uh, Woody Allen opened the show for us. Really? Yeah. In that short period that he was a stand-up, yeah, was only a yeah, couple this, years there. This yeah. was before the movies. Yeah, but, uh, and he was he was he was drop dead funny. Did you ever record? Did you ever release any comedy records on A and M? Yeah, you? we did. Uh, did you do Cheech and Chong? Yeah, well, Cheech and Chong was on Lou Adler's right. label. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, so he it, had a label within A and M. Yeah, we distributed his label. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that was really the first huge comedy record of the new comedy. In yeah, way. and of course, Lou had the uh, you know, Carole King record of uh, Tapestry. Oh, yeah, that's a that big record. That was recorded in, in, in our Studio B. That's a huge record. <clears throat> huge. So after, you, do you take any time, you know, in between, you know, moving out of that environment in, in, in your job as a, a, at a record company, 
Do you take any time or do you just keep playing? Do you, do you just sort of like... Yeah, the, no, I'm, I'm playing all the time. I mean, I play for my own pleasure. You know, uh-huh. so it's one of those things. You know, if, if I'm down and I feel kind of the day ain't happening, if I go in my studio and, and pick up the horn and start fooling around playing various exercises or whatever, I... I the, the beauty of being a musician and being an artist, yeah, you get to be in the moment yeah. of your life. You yeah. know, that's yeah. the only thing that matters is the thing you're doing at that moment. And your wife now is also a musician. Well, and my wife was the lead singer with Brazil '66. Okay, she was that voice. Yeah, and that's how we met, and we were friends. You know, for uh, some time before anything else happened. She's she's an outstanding artist. I mean, she's yeah. a world class singer. So there's two of you in the house. Yeah, so we we have a grand old time doing concerts around the country. We just got back from Japan, and that was, just, except for the time change, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got you know you got it all together. That's a that's a gift, man. Yeah, I'll tell you what happened in Japan because I didn't realize most of the people don't speak English, and mm-hmm. when they do, you can't understand them uh-huh. very much. You know, there's obviously some that really do well, but. And we were playing at this club. We were playing at the Blue Note Club. And I started singing. You know, I do that in the medley, uh, This Guy's in Love With You. And they, they all started singing with me phonetically. Man, it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's been a beautiful LeBron for me. Doesn't that shit make you weep sometimes? It, uh... Just with that joy of it. Like, I, when I, you know, something about singing to me, like, I get very moved by it, you know, especially if there's a lot of people doing it. Like, I, I go to musicals. I don't necessarily consider myself a musical lover, but there's something about people singing and dancing. It's just... Can't, can't yeah, happen. well, singing is, is quite a thing. I, I had an experience watching um, uh, Billie Holiday, believe really? it or not. Yeah, this was m- maybe a few months before she passed on. And uh, she was singing here in Los Angeles at a place called, uh, I th- think it was Jazz City or a place like that. I don't know if I have the name right. But anyway, she was singing and the drummer behind her was, uh, and she turned around and looked at him and said, if you wish to solo, I will go out in front and listen to you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Put that guy in his place. Yeah. <laughs> so the, this new record is now, now what do you do for labels now? How do you handle your relationship with the labels? Are you, well, it, we have our own label. You do? Okay. Presents. Yeah, right. It's a wonderful little uh, do it right bo- out boutique your house? label. Uh, it's out of uh, my uh, wonderful nephew's house, Randy. <laughs> oh, yeah? Everyone's in the business. My pursuit always has been, uh, if I can find a song that I like the melody, if I can do it in a way that hasn't been done quite that way before. Yeah, Chattanooga. I never heard Chattanooga Choo sound like that. Well, check out uh, <laughs> uh, um, Take the A-Train on, on, on the new album. Okay. That's pretty amazing because it's not, it's not written in three. I do it in three, four. Uh-huh. And it's written in four. You know, I always remember what uh, uh, Picasso once said. He said, you can paint the same picture over and over again, but if you don't do it the same way, that's the way to do it. That's the trick. That's the trick. What kind of rooms are you playing? Well, 900 to 1,200 to 1,400 people. Uh Uh-huh. Nice venues. And some will play clubs. We'll play clubs in like... uh, Jazz Alley in Seattle, which is I don't know, maybe hold four hundred people, but it's it's fun. I know I just I love to play. Man. Yeah, I just really do get off playing the trumpet. And and who comes out? You see a mixture of people. I'm all telling ages? you, man, they're young to old. It's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's uh, 
when we first uh, thought about getting a group together, I was very reluctant. I thought maybe, okay, I'm going to go out there and people are going to say, play Tastes of Funny, play, you know, all those records that uh, I had hits with. And it hasn't been like that. People are accepting us on the level that we're presenting it. It's beautiful, man. You've had an amazing life, sir, and I and I appreciate you sharing some time with me here. Us, ah, it's been fun. Thanks, man. There's more to come. Yeah, I, I feel that. <laughs> I definitely feel that. Thanks, Herb. Thank you. Pretty lucid, pretty lucid, man. I love when these old dudes can fucking talk and they're still living life, and they have a, uh, they have a, uh, you know, just a you know peace of mind. He's 80 years old, that dude. Uh, so that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. I will play a little guitar, I think. I, you know, I, I need to take some time to learn some new stuff. But let me let me get it together here. Let me get it together. Thank you for listening. And I'll, I'll outro with something here.